Hello, and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 78, A Crusade Without Crusaders. This is the second recording of this episode. I don't do that very often, but this time I really had to. The previous version sounded incredibly rushed, and there was a mistake in it. I kept on saying the year 1217 when I meant 1227. So I did it all again. If you have listened to the previous version and did not abandon the podcast, thank you so much. If you gave up halfway through, this version hopefully will be better. So, without further ado, here we go. This is the story I was looking forward to telling for quite some time. It has everything. Mindless fighting, stubbornness, fake armies, as well as elaborate diplomacy, cultural awareness and stunning success. It is the story of the crusade of Frederick II that has no parallel. For one, because Frederick did undertake it whilst excommunicated, and further, because he brought Jerusalem back under Christian control for one last time, without a shot being fired. The latter had not been achieved since the First Crusade, and will not happen again before modern times. Before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Christoph, Claire and Homme who've already signed up. We left off last episode with Frederick II's magnificent coronation in Rome. This was the last step in a string of rituals that established his legitimacy as emperor. The price he had to pay for all this had however been steep. He had to recognize the territorial gains the papacy had made in central Italy. He had to relinquish control of the imperial church. He had to vow to go on crusade and, finally, promise not to seek a union between the empire and the kingdom of Sicily. Given these heavy commitments, Frederick does what his father and grandfather had done once they had been crowned by the Pope. He instantly forgot about all of them. As for the union between Sicily and the Empire, he had sort of finagled that already. He had made his son, Henry, first king of Sicily, as had been requested by Innocent III, and in a second step, he then made the same child king of the Romans, on the grounds that he was about to set off on crusade and the imperial princes had urged him to organize his succession. With that, Henry was both king of Sicily and elected Holy Roman Emperor. But Henry was just eight years old, so the de facto ruler of both Sicily and the empire was Frederick II, and the Pope could do nothing about that. Frederick left the city of Rome three days after his coronation to go home, and home was the kingdom of Sicily. It was the kingdom of Sicily that he really cared about. The imperial crown was something he took on, more to protect his beloved south than for any great ambition to exercise power north of the Alps. Nothing makes that clearer than the way he organized the administration of his domains. He himself would reside in southern Italy for almost all of his remaining tenure. He will journey north only when his presence there becomes absolutely mandatory. In total, he'll spend just two of his remaining 30 years on the throne in Germany. Germany he leaves for his son Henry to rule, first under a regency council and once he's grown up in his own right as King of the Romans. 
Frederick's next few years from 1220 to 1228 are taken up by further tightening his hold over southern Italy. You may remember that when he left in 1212, his position had been extremely precarious. Various factions had been fighting for domination of the kingdom. There were the German minister Jarles his father had brought over, then what remained of the royal family, so the descendants of the usurper Tancred, plus the barons of Puglia, the cities of Pisa and Genoa, the Muslim inhabitants of the island, and the Chancellor, Walter of Pagliara, all of them plotting and fighting. It is nothing short of a miracle that when Frederick comes back in 1220, there was a kingdom left at all. He can even call a royal assembly and pass a number of laws designed to rebuild royal power and reverse the encastellation of his dominion. How is that possible? I could not find much detail about what had happened in the kingdom during the eight years he was away in Germany. All we are told is that Frederick had put his queen, Constance of Aragon, in charge as regent for his son. She was supposed to hold things together, a task he, as the legitimate heir to the throne, had struggled with ever since he'd been declared of age. Whatever Constance did, it must have been fairly successful, since the kingdom is in reasonable order, or at least had not risen up and chosen a new ruler. It seems to me that Constance of Aragon was a much more astute politician and administrator than sources give her credit for. Another one of those female medieval protagonists worth of further investigation. Whether she was a competent ruler or not, she is unlikely to have enjoyed married life very much. Frederick II is the first of the medieval German emperors with a voracious sexual appetite. During their marriage, he fathered six children that he acknowledged with four different women, some daughters of aristocrats in Germany or Italy, others with less exalted lineage. How much is true of the stories that he maintained two fully equipped harems in his main residences and a mobile one that followed him on his journeys remains unclear. Papal propaganda has a habit of ascribing the seven deadly sins to emperors who fall foul of the church. In case of Frederick, the accusations were lust, sloth and pride. Ecclesiastical writers, painting a picture of him as the Sultan of Lucera, living like an eastern potentate in a palace, dripping with gold, surrounded by dancing girls and eunuchs. Even if that was not the case, Constance could not count on the constancy of her husband. In 1222, she died and is buried in Palermo Cathedral in a Roman marble sarcophagus, once made for a man. The inscription says, Queen of Sicily was I, Constance, wife and empress. Now here I lie and am Frederick forever yours. Her treatment by Frederick sounds callous, but is nothing compared to her successes in the marital bed. In the 1220s, Frederick's entire focus was on rebuilding the political institutions of his kingdom of Sicily, a kingdom that under his grandfather was famously tightly managed. We'll spend most of the next episode discussing this in detail. What matters for today's story is that problems in southern Italy left Frederick with little or no capacity to fulfill his pledge to go on crusade. The prioritization of domestic matters rubbed Pope Honorius III up the wrong way. As I mentioned before, Honorius III was a much more conciliatory man than his predecessor, Innocent III. But there was one thing he really, really cared about, and that was the recovery of Jerusalem. And Frederick delaying and delaying his departure on crusade was not aiding that objective. Let us take a quick look at where things stand in the Holy Land by 1217. Following the Third Crusade, which is the one with Barbarossa, Richard Lionheart and Philip Auguste, 
the kingdom of Jerusalem had recovered to the point that it did hold a string of cities and fortifications along the coast of Palestine, Lebanon and Syria. The de facto capital was Akon, modern-day Acre, just north of Haifa. But most of the land, in particular Jerusalem itself, had been lost. After the Third Crusade, not much progress was made. The Fourth Crusade was a total dud, as far as Jerusalem was concerned. Instead of aiding the beleaguered kingdom of Outremer, the Crusaders had sacked Constantinople on behalf of their Venetian paymasters. That, if anything, made things worse, since the Byzantine Empire fragmented into multiple smaller states, some like Constantinople and parts of Greece held by Latin Crusaders, and others by former Byzantine generals. None of them able to hold back the Seljuk Turks. Meanwhile, the great Near Eastern leader Saladin had consolidated his position. His empire now stretched from eastern Turkey through Syria and Jordan to Egypt, as well as along the shores of the Red Sea down to Yemen. Simply put, the thin line of Crusader cities was surrounded on all sides by one of the most powerful Muslim states ever created. A state that wants to drive them back into the sea at the first opportunity. As a consequence, the Kingdom of Jerusalem was on a near-permanent war footing. Everything was geared up to fight the next Muslim army that would come across the hill. The Knights, Hospitaliers and the Templars were the closest thing to a standing army the Middle Ages had produced. The military orders were garrisoned in some of the largest military fortifications of the 13th century. Have a look at the Crac de Chevalier in Syria, which at its height held a force of 2,000 knights and their attendants. They were an important and an independent voice at court, since they were directly responsible to the Pope, not the King. Then there are the great barons of the kingdom, who had come with the First Crusade. They owned large estates and strong castles, meant by an ever-changing guard of crusaders from back home. These soldiers would come down to Outremer, usually for a limited time period, a sort of chivalric gap year, helping out the locals. All that had made a lot easier since transport links between the West and Outremer had improved significantly. The maritime republics of Venice, Genoa and Pisa had established staging posts along the route to Akon, where ships could be repaired and victualled. Venice in particular had acquired a string of safe harbours along the Dalmatian coast and the Peloponnese, as well as landing rights in Rhodes and Cyprus. Their galleys would travel back and forth, transporting crusaders east and returning with the luxury goods from Persia, India and China. The latter they would pick up not necessarily in Akon, but more likely in Alexandria, where they had a factory, courtesy of that enemy of the crusaders, Saladin. Venetian merchants became immensely rich in the process. The kingdom was held together by its titular king, John of Brienne, husband to Maria of Montferrat. John was a minor nobleman from Champagne and a respected military leader. The latter is why the magnates of the Kingdom of Jerusalem had asked him to come and marry their queen. It was only through this marriage that he had become king of Jerusalem. Formerly, he ruled only on behalf of his wife and then, once she had died, on behalf of his daughter, Isabella of Brienne. This all sounds a bit as if it was a well-oiled machine when new knights would arrive on a conveyor belt from the west would be put to good use and then replaced with the next set of recruits. Nothing could be further from the truth. The supply of new recruits was extremely volatile. Oftentimes the reinforcements would dwindle down to a mere trickle as conflicts like the civil war between the Welf and the Hohenstaufen 
or the incessant Anglo-French wars precluded many knights from undertaking the journey. At other times, too many would show up, usually led by some mighty king or duke or prince with zero knowledge of the political, military and geographic conditions, keen on one glorious dash and a quick boat home. In the worst of all cases, several of these guys would come all at the same time and spend most of their efforts on outdoing and insulting each other. With all that in mind, Innocent III had called for a fifth crusade in 1216. Innocent III was convinced that as the true emperor of Christendom, he had to lead the crusade in person. Not a completely stupid idea, since he was at this point recognized as the superior overlord of all the princes of Europe. Even our Freddy called himself at that time king by the grace of God and the will of the Pope. With Innocent in the lead, there was no risk the Venetians would again turn the Crusaders into their private mercenary army, or that the leaders would squabble endlessly. But the great papal-led crusade never happened, because Innocent III died unexpectedly just 55 years old in 1216. His successor, Honorius III, was much too old to undertake such a dangerous journey himself. Hence, the Fifth Crusade ended up with a more familiar setup. King Andrew of Hungary and Duke Leopold of Austria were the military leaders at the outset. Honorius had dispatched the papal legate as his representative, who was to ensure the Crusade stayed on the straight and narrow, laser-focused on recapturing Jerusalem. Hmm. The Fifth Crusade did try a novel approach to the recapture of Jerusalem. Instead of sending the army to besiege the target, Jerusalem, they decided to attack Egypt. That was, after all, not as daft as it sounds. Egypt was the jewel in the crown of the empire that the great Saladin had built. Its capital, Cairo, was en route to half a million inhabitants, becoming the largest city west of China. Cairo had taken over the role of Constantinople as the great entrepot between east and west. Goods came up the Red Sea or down via the Silk Road to the city of a thousand minarets. From there, they'd be shipped to a harbour on the Mediterranean to be distributed to Europe or North Africa. Alexandria had been the great port for exports from Egypt since antiquity. In the 13th century, this, however, had changed to a degree. Alexandria is not on the Nile, meaning goods needed to be brought there by road. River transport tended to be safer which meant harbours on the Nile Delta itself began to overtake Alexandria. In 1217, the most important of those was Damietta. Damietta was positioned on the northernmost branch of the Nile and had grown to be a large and well-defended city surrounded by strong walls and towers. The crusader plan was to take Damietta, choke off the source of Kairos and hence the source of Ayyubid wealth and power. This pressure may just get them to a point where the successor of Saladin Sultan al-Kamil would be forced to hand over Jerusalem and all the holy sites, and maybe some trading privileges to the poor Venetians who still had to trade through Alexandria. And against all the odds, the Crusaders did almost achieve their goal. Damietta fell after a two-year-long campaign that saw the usual combination of internal squabbling, pointless heroism and military ingenuity. When Damietta finally falls, it was almost empty, except for the dead and the ill. Disease and dwindling supplies had forced Sultan al-Kamil to take his army home. Having lost the key to the global east-west trade meant Sultan al-Kamil was ready to negotiate. 
the RUB is prepared to hand over almost all the Crusaders could ask for. The city of Jerusalem, as well as the holy sites of Bethlehem and Nazareth, the right to rebuild the defensive walls around Jerusalem, and as negotiations drag on, even more territories across Palestine, until it encompasses almost all of the old kingdom of Jerusalem. For any rational observer, this should be the end of the crusade. The main military objectives are achieved, and they can enter Jerusalem as liberators. For King John of Brienne and the barons of the kingdom of Jerusalem, that is a no-brainer. Let's take the deal and go home. But there is a snag. The Sultan does not want to and probably cannot hand over key castles that protect the pilgrim route to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Temple Mount, as well as the mosque itself. It is after all the place where Muhammad had ascended to heaven, the third most holy place for all Muslims. That is not good enough for the hardliners, in particular not for the papal legate, you know, the one who is supposedly to be laser-focused on recapturing Jerusalem. The whole of the old kingdom of Jerusalem is what he wants, including the castles and the mosque. The Templars and Hospitaliers are knightly orders and report directly to the Pope, so they side with the legate. And the Templars have a particular interest here, as they are named after the Temple of Salomon and had their headquarters there. Negotiations go back and forth for another two years, whilst the Crusader army remains inside the destroyed city of Damietta. In 1221, Al-Kamil ups his offer and throws in more land and holy sites. Again, the legate refuses. Sultan al-Kamil, meanwhile, is busy implementing his plan B, should negotiations fail. He gathers more troops and builds defensive positions along the Nile. The Crusaders during that time are almost completely inactive. Their camp is riven with discord. The papal legate is pushing for further military action, whilst the opposition does not want to jeopardize the deal that is on the table. Arguments go back and forth, and ever more unusual plans are made to break the gridlock. In September 1219, St. Francis of Assisi arrives in Damietta. He thinks he can bring peace by converting Sultan al-Kamil to the true faith. Francis and his followers head out to the camp of the Sultan and begin preaching. The experienced soldiers advise against it. When St. Francis insists, they prepare themselves to carry back the bones of a martyr. But, for some undisclosed reason, the Sultan believes that these unwashed men in beggars' clothing are emissaries of the Crusaders. St. Francis is brought before the defender of the holy sites of Mecca and Medina and begins preaching. Guests are they in Latin or Italian, neither of which Sultan al-Kamil understands. Sultan al-Kamil treated him with respect, lets him finish his sermon and had him led back safely to the Crusader camp. Contrary to legend and expectation, Sultan al-Kamil did not convert, and the military situation remained unchanged. Finally, news arrive that they have all been secretly hoping for. The son of Prester John, ruler of a mighty Christian kingdom in the east, was on his way with a vast army. If we attack Cairo from the west and then Prester John comes in from the east, we can create a pincer movement that will wipe the Saracens from the face of the earth. Let us go for glory, for Christ and for the plunder of one of the richest cities in the world. On July 4th, 1221, after a three-day fast to prepare themselves, the Crusader army sets off along the Nile for Cairo, the fabled citadel of Saladin, where they still hold the captured shards of the Holy Cross. 
The road crosses several canals and reservoirs that crisscross the delta. The Nile was at its crest, which allowed the Muslim armies to bring ships up these canals in the Crusaders' rear. Cut off from their supply lines, the Christian armies tried to move forward but faced resistance from the fort Sultan al-Kamil had built. Being stuck, with no way going forward or back, they make camp. In the night, the Sultan's soldiers opened the sluices, and the Nile water simply drowned the crusader camp in mud. With horses and men stuck in Nile sludge, no battle needs to be fought. The crusader army capitulated. Prester John and his mighty army did not come to bail them out, because Prester John does not exist. He's a fable. He's not a real man. The other one who had not come to their aid was the Emperor, Frederick II. Since the crusade had begun, Pope Honorius had urged Frederick in ever more desperate letters to make good on his crusading pledge and join the army at Damietta. Frederick was however still tied up in his reorganizations of the Kingdom of Sicily and could not or would not leave. He did, however, send his admiral, Henry of Malta, and his chancellor, Walter of Pagliara, with a sizable troop contingent to Damietta. These troops arrived, however, after the army had already set off for their fateful journey to Cairo. When news came of the catastrophic defeat, the new leadership in Damietta considered their options. Damietta was still a strong, defensible position and now newly garrisoned, so it could hold out for a while. But what then? Will there be more enthusiastic campaigners come to Damietta after the tale of incompetence and pig-headedness had spread across Europe? Probably not. So, they offered a treaty to the Sultan. They would leave Damietta in exchange not for the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but just for fragments of the Holy Cross that Saladin had captured at the Battle of Hattin. This time it is the Sultan who is stubborn. Instead of digging up some odd bits of wood and let the crusaders go home with their heads held up at least a little bit higher, he just says, Apologies, could not find these old relics you care for so much, may have ended up on some skip. Sorry, no can do. And with that, the surviving crusaders leave empty-handed. Two weeks later, Sultan al-Kamil re-enters Damietta. The fifth crusade is over. As is customary, the Pope blamed the failure of the expedition not on the stubbornness and credulity of his legate, but on the hesitancy of Frederick II. If only Frederick had come with a large army as he had promised, Cairo would now be ours. He did not explain exactly how imperial horses could be able to charge Egyptian positions over knee-deep Nile mud. As a neglectful crusader blamed for the failure of the great expedition, Frederick was up for excommunication. And that is before all his other misdemeanors, such as personal rule of Sicily in violation of all sorts of golden bulls and solemn oaths. The reason he for now escapes his punishment is down to the diplomatic skills of a man who will be one of Frederick's most important advisers, a man who also stands at the beginning of the state of Prussia, Hermann von Salzer, 4th Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights. Hermann von Salzer was born around 1165, came from a family of ministeriales in the service of the Landgrafs of Thuringia. His early years are, as so often, undocumented. It seems he had joined the Order of the Teutonic Knights shortly after its founding. The Teutonic Knights were the youngest of the great military orders in the Holy Land. The order had been founded in 1190, so after the fall of Jerusalem, as a field hospital during the siege of Akon. It took the name of the 
German house of St. Mary in Jerusalem, in the hope that one day they would reopen the old hospital for German pilgrims in Jerusalem that had been there since before the First Crusade. Its founders were knights or princes, but burghers of the trading cities of Bremen and Lübeck. It did not take long for the community to transition from providers of medical care to military order. Already by 1193, the German knights were put in charge of part of the defences of Akon. The Teutonic knights filled a gap in the Crusader military. The Templars were dominated by French knights, whilst the Hospitaliers mainly took English and Italian nobles. The Germans had been latecomers to the Crusader movement, as they had so often been detained by conflicts at home, and so they lacked a natural home amongst the military orders in the Holy Land. To bring these guys in without interfering with the recruitment ground of the established organizations, the statutes of the order had to contain an unusual requirement. Its members had to come exclusively from German lands. Hence they were known as the German or the Teutonic Knights. The new order grew fast and enjoyed support from both papal and imperial sponsors. But the real boost came when they elected Hermann von Salzer as its fourth Grand Master. The order had been involved in the Crusades of Barbarossa and Henry VI and was hence broadly supportive of the Hohenstaufen cause. But when Frederick came up to Germany in 1212, and in particular after the Battle of Bouvin, the Grand Master and the Emperor struck up a close friendship that made the two institutions almost inseparable. There will be a season on the Teutonic Knights in the Hanseatic League that will come up right after this one, where we'll go into much more detail about this. But for now it's enough to understand that Frederick II and the Teutonic Knights are in a symbiotic relationship. Frederick gives them material wealth and helps them recruit young noblemen to their cause. In return, the knights support him in Germany, help organize his crusade and maintain communication lines with the papacy. The latter is probably the most crucial. Frederick's father, Henry VI, had struggled for years with popes who would simply not answer his letters. But Hermann von Salzer enjoyed both the trust of Frederick II and that of Pope Honorius III. Pope and Grand Master shared the passion for the recovery of the holy sites. During the Damietta campaign, Hermann von Salzer had assured His Holiness again and again that Frederick would set off very soon. Salzer bridged not just imperial and papal positions, but also east and west. He was personally involved in the siege of Damietta and, even in the subsequent lost battle, while simultaneously leading the negotiations between Frederick and the Pope over his coronation in 1220 and then over his dispensation from the charge of criminal negligence in 1222. Hermann von Salza's diplomatic work isn't done with the relief from punishment in 1222. Frederick was still pledged to go on crusade. Again, von Salza convinces Honorius that Frederick will definitely go. The two sides agree a delay for two years to 1224, and then, when Frederick is still not ready, a new departure date is set for 1225. Frederick is still refusing to go in 1225, and now the Pope is getting really fractious. Even von Salzer's assurances no longer work. He nails Frederick down to a firm last and final departure date, using a carrot-and-stick approach. The stick is excommunication. If Frederick does not leave for the Holy Land by August 1227 with at least 1,000 knights that he will keep in the field for two years, and he provides shipping for a further 2,000 knights, and pays 100,000 ounces of gold into an escrow account, he will be 
automatically excommunicated, his vassals relieved from their oaths of fealty. No ifs, no buts, no excuses. Automatically. The carrot is Isabella of Brienne, queen and heiress to the kingdom of Jerusalem. Frederick gets to marry her and with it gains the title of king of Jerusalem, on top of already being emperor, king of the Romans and king of Sicily. That caused the first drift, since there is already a king of Jerusalem, Isabella's father, John of Brienne. John had always known that should his daughter marry at any point, he would lose his crown. But he may have expected a bit more courteous treatment by Frederick. The relationship between the two kings soured rapidly, though they had been firm friends in the past. The rift with the papacy deepened even further, when Frederick began to row back on another promise he had made to the popes recognizing their ownership of the Mark of Ancona and the Duchy of Spoleto. One of Frederick's vassals had begun a slow land grab in Spoleto, which irritated the Pope no end. From Frederick's perspective, these lands are crucial, as a bridge between his kingdom in the south and Imperial Italy in the north. The issue had gained prominence when Frederick tried to intervene in Lombard affairs, but could neither bring an army up from Sicily, nor could his son bring down troops from Germany, as a newly founded Lombard League blocked the passes. And then he purges the Sicilian clergy of papal appointees and replaces them with his own man. Suffice to say the tensions are running high as we are approaching Embarkation Day, August 1227. Hermann von Salza had been promoting the crusade in Germany but failed to build up much enthusiasm amongst the princes. The disaster of both the Fourth and Fifth Crusade had drained the air from the crusading spirit. Hence Frederick had to pay many of them to come along. Only his friend, the Landgraf Louis of Thuringia, did come on his own volition with a large army. As had happened before, the Crusades comprised not just armed men, but also civilian pilgrims, lured by the false promise of free shipping and keen to see the Holy Sepulchre before their death. All of these people were heading to Brindisi in the summer of 1227. Numbers are hard to gauge. Frederick's commitment to transport 3,000 knights, who came with three servants each, amounted to 9,000 souls plus sailors to operate the ships. On top of that, you have probably an equal number of pilgrims, which means almost 20,000 people camped before Brindisi. Frederick had promised shipping for 3,000 knights, but sustenance only for his own 1,000 knights in their retinue. Not for the other soldiers and certainly not for all the roughly 20,000 who had piled in. Many suffered hunger and sanitary conditions in the camp deteriorated terribly. In the summer heat, disease broke out, most likely malaria. Before the first galley cast off its lines, nearly half of the crusaders were dead or ill. Frederick and his friend the Landgraf of Thuringia caught the fever too, but still decided to go out to sea. Frederick, because he feared the automatic excommunication, and Louis, because he was his friend. Two days later, the Landgraf was dead and the emperor gravely ill. The captain of the ship decided to return to Otranto. Frederick was brought to Pozzuoli, where he recovered in the ancient Roman thermal baths that were still operating in the 13th century. In the meantime, Honorius III had died and his successor, Gregory IX, had none of the forbearance of his predecessor. Some of you say that I am somewhat biased. Some say that I present the church as always evil, probably a question of perspective. From where I'm standing, I feel I try my very best to be neutral. But 
Just to give you an idea how much more anti-clerical historians can be, here is Ernst Kantorowicz talking about Gregory IX. Quote, His weapons and methods were for the most part unattractive. Slight untruths, imputations, calumnies. They were often too transparent and produced an ugly impression, robbing the Pope's procedure of every shadow of right, especially as no one but himself recognized the deeper necessity of the struggle. The obstinate old man, drunk with hate, pursued his end with singleness of aim to his last hour, indifferent to the fact that he was called a heretic, that he was forsaken by those nearest him, until he became, for all his petty dishonesties, not only a dangerous enemy, but a great one. I leave that standing here and you can make up your own mind as I talk about what happens next. Gregory IX wasted no time. Frederick II had disembarked in Otranto half-dead on September 12th. Ten days later, Pope Gregory IX excommunicated him. The fact that Frederick was ill was no excuse, which is indeed true. The treaty said, automatic excommunications, no ifs, no buts. Still, Frederick appealed to Pope and public opinion. He pointed to his determination to go and the death of his friend, claiming extenuating circumstances. But that only upped the ante for Gregory IX. The Pope now blamed the disease itself on Frederick. It was, he says, the Emperor's idea to leave from Brindisi in August when the risk of malaria was highest. He claimed the Emperor had not paid the 100,000 ounces of gold as promised, nor, he says, has he provided all the shipping required. Frederick then tried the age-old strategy of doing penance, as Henry IV and Barbarossa had done. But Gregory IX refused to grant absolution to this penitent. Instead, he began rattling off another long list of transgressions, some real, some entirely invented. This is where the stories of Frederick's sexual and moral deviance began to circulate. It appears Gregory IX's main concern is the encirclement of the papal lands, and that would mean his main concern is the destruction of the Hohenstaufens. He is prepared to let a chance to regain Jerusalem go if it rids him of his excessively powerful neighbour. What further writes the Pope is that Frederick, like his father, was running the crusade as his personal campaign, not as a campaign on behalf of the Pope. Hence, in the unlikely case that he would have been successful, all the glory would go to him, not to the Pope. Honorius could accept this in the interest of the higher purpose of getting Jerusalem back. Gregory could not. We are in a catch-22. The Pope argues that he cannot release Frederick from the ban, until he has fulfilled his crusader obligations. But without release from the ban, Frederick cannot go on a crusade. Frederick concludes, the only way out for him is to go to the Holy Land anyway. If he can recapture Jerusalem, he will be the great hero of Christendom and the Pope will have to relent. On the flip side, if he's not successful, then it's all over. The excommunication will stick, his vassals will be released from their oaths and his kingdom will go up in flames. It is a bit like 1212, where the only safe option is a harebrained scheme of gaining a kingdom from a much more powerful opponent. In 1228, Frederick set sail for Akon with a sizable, but not a huge army. Those who come along are not crusaders, because there is no promised absolution should they die in the endeavor. Mostly, they're personal vassals, Teutonic knights and mercenaries. There is no papal blessing for this journey. Frederick even takes his Muslim fighters, a huge affront 
to the idea of religious holy war. Nobody's more surprised about Frederick's departure than Pope Gregory IX, but he acts quickly. With Frederick out on the high seas and the hundred thousand ounces of gold, Frederick had indeed paid safely into the papal coffers, he musters his own mercenary army to invade Sicily and puts it under the command of John of Brienne, former King of Jerusalem and father-in-law of Frederick. At the same time, he subtly encourages the imperial princes to elect a new king to replace the unrepentant excommunicate. What Frederick II sees beyond the wake of his ships is the total unravelling of his realm. The only way to keep his many crowns is to recapture Jerusalem. That task had been too much for the greatest of medieval warriors, for Richard the Lionheart, for Philip Auguste, for Leopold of Austria, even for his own grandfather, the mighty Frederick Barbarossa. They have all failed. He has a smaller army than any of them, and he hasn't got time. Jerusalem needs to be his before the papal army storm into Palermo. That sounds like a completely loopy scheme, even more foolish than his wild dash to Constance in 1212. But he's no longer 17, and this time he has a plan. A trump card nobody knows about. Since before he left, Frederick had been in contact with the Sultan Al-Kamil of Egypt. Al-Kamil was tied up in family quarrels. They were so serious that he was prepared to renew the old offer he had made before Damietta. Return of the whole kingdom of Jerusalem in exchange for an alliance against his brother, the Emir of Damascus. That would involve some military action against the Emir, but if the forces of the kingdom of Jerusalem joined his army, as well as those of the Sultan of Egypt, a campaign would have a much higher chance of success than anything attempted these last 40 years. But when Frederick's, Frederick arrives in Akon, treaty in the pocket, he receives news from Al-Kamil that blow his entire plan out of the water. As it happened, the Sultan's brother, the one he was quarrelling with, had been kind enough to set off for paradise on his own accord. Al-Kamil had seized the opportunity, taken over most of his brother's territory, including Jerusalem, and was now lying with a large army in Nablus. No longer does he need the help of his brother Emperor. He wishes him all the best in his endeavour, and here are some camels, silks and other gifts, a sign of my enduring friendship, most sincerely, etc, etc, pp. The Emperor's position is now desperate. Things weren't helped by a storm that cut his supply lines and his army goes hungry. His negotiations have fallen through. An enemy army is on the march in Sicily, and the Pope has relieved all his subjects in Italy from their oath of fealty. But what makes it completely untenable is that Gregory had sent envoys to Outremer ahead, getting the Patriarch of Jerusalem and all the local clergy to preach against the excommunicated sinner who was planning to despoil the Holy Sepulchre. That meant he could no longer count on the forces of the Templars and Hospitaliers and even the local barons. No way he can take Jerusalem by force. Now the next thing that happens is that Al-Kamil agrees to give Frederick, Jerusalem, Bethlehem and Nazareth for ten years. For why he does that? There are two versions. Modern historians, like Hubert Huben, claim that Al-Kamil was preparing further confrontations with his nephew Al-Nazir and hence was keen to sign a peace agreement with the Crusader state. Others, like Olaf Rada, do not even talk about Al-Kamil's motives. 
It is true that the crusader states were tying up a chunk of Al-Kamil's forces, which may be a reason for him to seek a more permanent arrangement. But the agreement falls a bit from the sky, if that was the only reason. Al-Kamil could have made such an arrangement with the crusaders at any point before, and seemingly didn't make any offers. If you don't find the modern historians convincing, here's what the old school of historians had to say. It's a bit more romantic, a bit more improbable, but let me run you through it again in the inimitable words of Ernst Kantorowicz. Frederick treated with Fakhruddin, the Sultan's envoy, which all goes to indicate how important the personal factor was throughout. The emperor was a past master in the art of discussion. The charm of his personality, his astounding knowledge, his quickness of repartee made him equal of anyone. Frederick had complete command of Arabic and was acquainted with Arab poets. His amazing knowledge of philosophy, logic, mathematics and medicine and every other branch of learning enabled him to turn any conversation into the philosophical channels dear to the Oriental heart. He had been completely successful in his handling of his Saracen colonists in Lucera and now he moved amongst the Saracen princes with the perfect savoir-faire of an accomplished man of the world. So he conversed away with Fakhruddin about philosophy and the arts of government, and Fakhruddin must have had much to tell his master about the emperor. Al-Kamil was the very man to appreciate such qualities. He was an oriental edition of the emperor, unless indeed, to be more correct, to call the emperor an occidental edition of the sultan. Al-Kamil loved to dispute with learned men about jurisprudence and grammar, beloved especially of the Arab. He was himself a poet, some of his verses still survive, and his mountain castle, as they tell, fifty scholars reclined on divans round his throne to provide his evening conversation. He spent money willingly in the furtherance of learning, founded a school in Cairo for the study of Islamic tradition, and appointed salaries for jurists. People praised his courteous bearing as much as his stern and impressive dignity. In addition, he was an admirable administrator who checked his own revenues and even invented new varieties of tax. He had no more fancy than Frederick for aimless bloodshed if the end could be reached by friendly means, and so it came about that the negotiations presently bore fruit. End quote. And that fruit was the return of the cities of Jerusalem, Bethlehem and Nazareth, including a narrow land corridor connecting them to Akon and Jaffa. All that in exchange for a ten-year peace agreement. A bromance between the defender of Mecca and Medina and the sword of Christendom had resulted in peace. Somehow the two men had found a way to trust each other enough to sign a compromise that would enrage either of their camps but serve their purposes. It is an astounding and rarely repeated event, if ever. Frederick II entered Jerusalem on March 17, 1229, proceeded to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where he walks under the crown of Jerusalem. The pilgrims and soldiers he'd brought with him break out in great jubilation. That turns quickly into despair. The Patriarch of Jerusalem had put the whole city under interdict. No Mass can be said, no sacrament performed, no prayers at the Holy Sepulchre will be said. All the pilgrims had come for were suddenly put out of reach. Frederick has to leave his new capital the next day so the interdict can be lifted. Upon Frederick's return to Akon, he receives a most frosty reception. As expected, the patriarch and the clergy of the kingdom instructed by Gregory 
refused to release him from the ban. No release from the ban, no former coronation. But the barons of the kingdom are disappointed too. He has failed to regain the fertile land surrounding the cities, making the holy sites largely a financial burden. And the Templars are outraged that the Temple Mount and the Al-Aqsa Mosque had remained out of bounds for Christian pilgrims. They want their old headquarters back. When the animosity turns into street fighting, does the dejected emperor leave Akon and set sail for home? News arrived that papal troops had come as far as Benevento. It's time to go home and save his kingdom. Jerusalem will remain in Christian hands until 1241. Crusades will continue for another hundred years, but never again will the crusaders gain control of the holy sites. Next week, we'll take a look at how Frederick re-established his reign in Sicily, expels foreigners, breaks his barons, and creates the famous community of Muslims in Lucera. I hope you can join us again. Before I go, let me thank all of you for supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for mattresses, or as I recently heard, energy supplements and pension plans. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others and it's bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>